Well, this morning we are continuing our series in the Psalms, taking a look at Psalm 90. Many of the Psalms are clearly songs. Many of them are both song and prayer. This one's more of a prayer than a song. The superscription even states that it is a prayer, a prayer of Moses. It's a prayer that's intended to be both instructive and exemplary. It teaches us something that we need to know, and it shows us something that we need to do. The message of the psalm is simple. Humble yourself before the sovereign, sustaining grace of the Lord. That's it. This is not intended to be a feel-good-about-yourself sort of psalm. This is not intended to address your felt needs. This is a behold your God, forget about yourself, bow down, and worship him kind of psalm. Humble yourself before him. Scripture clearly states that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we're told again in 1 Peter chapter 5 to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. This psalm similarly teaches us that we need to bow down before the Lord. We need to humble ourselves before him, and it shows us again how to do it. And that's how we're going to approach it as we go through the text. We'll answer the question, how? How are we to humble ourselves before the Lord? In verses 1 and 2, we'll see that we humble ourselves as we behold the person of the Lord, his person, his character. In verses 3 through 11, we humble ourselves as we endure the penalty of the Lord, his penalty for our sin. And in verses 12 through 17, we humble ourselves as we seek the provision of the Lord, the provision of his grace. We humble ourselves by beholding his person, by enduring his penalty, and by seeking his provision of grace. Well, this psalm has always been interesting to me, if only for the superscription that it says, again, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole text for us, and then we'll get into a little bit more of the background. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger? And your wrath according to the fear of you. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for the days, for as many days as you have afflicted us, as as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to your children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray one more time. Father, again, we thank you, and as we come before your word, again, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things. In Christ's name, amen. Well, again, this psalm, the superscription there says that it is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Who better to teach us about humility than Moses? Scripture testifies to the humbleness of Moses in Numbers 12, verse 3. Around the time when Miriam and Aaron attempted to rebel against the leadership of Moses, he didn't rebuke them. He didn't rail against them. The Lord actually rebukes them. But this man, Moses, spoke with God face to face, and yet he did not lord that over the people. He simply received the word of God and spoke it before them. Everyone knew that he met with God face to face. God, again, even affirmed that before Miriam and Aaron, all the people, that God had a relationship with Moses like no man who had gone before him and really like no other man who would come after him. But again, this wasn't a badge of honor that he flaunted. 
It was an honor that he bore humbly as a servant of the Lord. Now, commentators have regarded the mention of Moses here in this psalm in one of two ways. We do have record of some songs that Moses composed in the Pentateuch, particularly in Exodus chapter 15 and Deuteronomy 31. As we approach the end of Moses' life, so it's not out of the question to suspect that Moses had written some psalms or other songs. Moreover, there are some other echoes of Genesis as you go through this psalm, the reference to creation in verse 2, the reference to man returning to dust in verse 3, the flood in verse 5, death and the difficulty of life resulting from the wrath of God in verses 7 through 10. There's some other things there as well. Others have also commented that the reference to 70 or 80 years doesn't really match up with Moses' life. Moses lived to be 120 And it's interesting, the commentary that is made about Moses in Deuteronomy 34, it says that Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. Think about that. How'd you like that to be said of you when you're 120? I mean, I'm 40 and my eyes are already going downhill. So there's no hope for me. I mean, I don't really want to live to 120, but I know that there's no hope anyway. Um, but in light of this, in light of this and you know, certain other uh, aspects of the psalm, it seems more likely that the author of Psalm 90 made mention of Moses just to capture the sense of their feeling of being oppressed for some reason, likely around the time of the Babylonian captivity and their need for the Lord's deliverance. Even the acknowledgement of their sin, that their sin is what brought them to the place of oppression. They mentioned their sin and God's response to their sin in this passage. That's kind of a big deal in this section, in this psalm. But it does also recall Moses' final words in Deuteronomy where he indicated that indeed the people of God would fall away in the future. um, And that they would cry out to God for deliverance and ultimately that he would deliver them. Regardless of how you take it, whether this was actually written by Moses or the superscription is just just being attributed to Moses, it seems appropriate to mention him Um, in light of the theology of the psalm, the spirit of humility and deference to the greatness of God. um, As we go through the psalm, I'm going to call it Moses' psalm because, you know, it says that it's the psalm of Moses and I'm cool with that. So that's how we're going to take it. Well, let's look at that first point together. Verses 1 and 2, again, we humble ourselves as we behold the person of the Lord, as we behold his character. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The word of God is so amazing, is it not? So much can be stated with one little phrase. As I was studying this passage, I found myself once again excited to think that this one phrase could occupy us for the whole length of this sermon. I'm not going to do that to you this morning. Maybe we'll do something like that in the future. But uh, we're going to get through the whole psalm today, I promise. Um, but this one phrase is just so packed full of meaning. Um, these, these two verses here are so packed full of meaning. The word here used to translate Lord in the English is not the covenant name for God. This is a proper title, Lord, Adonai, is the, uh, the Hebrew term. It is given to a ruler, a governor, an authority, one to whom we must give obedience. In other words, he's saying that um, God is the Lord. He's the ruler. He's the governor. He's the king. He's the authority over us. The Lord is who the prayer is directed towards. This one, this person who Moses prays to, is himself the dwelling place of the people of God. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. I think I made this point before. I'll make it again. Of course, this is fresh in our minds as we just moved into our new home. But one's dwelling place, one place of habitation is important. It's significant in life. Where you live, where you lay your head at at night is significant. We all want to be comfortable. We all want to be safe. We all want a dwelling place that's suitable for our family's needs. Ultimately, for Moses and the people of God, their dwelling place, their true dwelling place is not a physical address. We touched on this last week as we were going through Genesis, concluding Genesis. It's not even a piece of land, but ultimately their dwelling place is the Lord God himself. It is in and under the authority of the Lord. It is in his care, under his rule, under his governance. For every true believer, there's no greater place to be. 
Moses says this has been true in all generations. While the whole world rushes headlong away from God, away from his rule, away from his word, away from that stuffy old religion, the believer finds his resting place in God and in God alone. We may have nothing else to call our own in this world. If we have God, if we are in God, if we are under his rule, his governance, his authority, we have everything. And we may have this confidence in God, this trust in God, this rest in God, and God alone, because he alone is eternal. And there's no one greater to trust in. He is the Lord, sovereign, ruler, king, and he is so eternally. Look again at verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you were God. We travel great distances to see things like the Grand Canyon, right? It's really just a big crack in the ground. But we, we like to go places like that to see it, to, to, to stand in awe of it. We travel great distances to see things like Mount Everest. Some people are crazy enough to try to climb Mount Everest, risking their lives just to say that they got to the top. But that's just, you know, it's just what we do. It's one of those things we do. There's something in us that longs to be awed by greatness. And that's true for all of us on some level. That's why we go through great lengths to be able to say, I saw that once, whatever that is. But as great as those things are, as old as they are, thousands of years old, not millions as evolutionists claim, as old and awe-inspiring as those things are, God is greater. God has been around longer. Again, before the mountains were brought forth from everlasting to everlasting. You ever think about what was here before anything else? If you think about it, you can't really talk about before creation because time is a part of creation, right? Time did not exist before the created order, at least not in the same sense. This is why Moses says, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. The Lord is God from the time before time began, if we can say it that way, and he's God after time is over. After the created order as we know it is over, he is God. He is eternally so. We had a phrase back in the day that so-and-so has been around the block a few times, right? Meaning that they've had experience in something and so can be consulted for wisdom on that issue. Well, God made the block, right? God is greater than the block because God made the block. He's been around. He knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's doing. If we're going to go to anyone, if we're going to look to anyone, if we're going to trust in anyone, we need to trust in him. It does take a great deal of humility to acknowledge this. It takes a great deal of humility to desire the Lord for this, to desire to be found in him, knowing who he is, knowing that he is sovereign, ruler, king, Lord. This is probably the driving force behind atheism and certainly the driving force behind the moral revolution that has happened in, ref in recent years is the desire to see that no one is greater than the almighty I. It's a desire to ensure that no one claims absolute authority over me. I want to remain autonomous. I need to feel as if I'm free to be whatever, to do whatever I want, and for no one to have the ability to stop me or say anything against it. I still remember a track that I've seen before that has a picture of two men, one running to jump over what appears to be a fence to keep people out, and you read the caption of the man saying, I hate being confined by this fence, and he runs and he jumps over that fence. The next section shows his friend trying to stop him, saying, it's not a fence, it's a guardrail. And you get the perspective from the other side of the fence, and there's a hill that drops off. And you see the guy just plunging over the other side. And on the fence is written God's commands. That's kind of how the world sees God. You know, for the believer, we acknowledge that he is Lord, he is king, he is ruler, he is sovereign. And we rest in that truth. But the world rejects that because they don't want to abide under his rule. They don't want his commands. They don't want to be fenced in. When in reality, God gives those commands as a safety for us because he knows what's right. He knows what's good for us. I wonder which one are you this morning? Where is your heart with respect to the person of God? Where is your heart with respect to his rule? He is God. Is that offensive to you? Or do you humble yourself before it, before that truth, before him? 
Well, again, we need to be humble before our God. In verses 1 and 2, again, we saw that we humble ourselves as we behold the person of the Lord, his person, his character. In verses 3 through 11, we see that we humble ourselves as we endure the penalty of the Lord, his penalty for our sin. Let's look at 3 through 11 once again. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? The reality is that we're not naturally so humble, right? We're not naturally so willing to subject ourselves to the Lord. That's part of the reminder in this text. Verse 3 is a general statement declaring the penalty that God gives as a result of our sin, as a result of the fact that we tend to reject his rule, his governing authority over us. He says, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. God returns us to the dust. Don't miss that God is the mover in this psalm, right? He's the doer. He's the dwelling place of his people. He is God. He returns men to the dust. He has anger over their sin. Later on, we'll see that he is the one whom we need us to give us grace. God returns us to dust. This is a general statement as to the condition of humanity. We were brought forth from dust, and to dust we shall return. Again, Pastor Chris pointed out this last week. We don't like to talk about death, but it comes to all of us. We are all subject to it. It seems like no one but the philosophers have thought to consider why we are all subject to death. We spend thousands, millions of dollars in research, working on medicines to prolong life and enhance life and attempts to cheat death, and yet we all still die. Why? Why, for all of our technological advances, are we not able to keep ourselves from dying? It's because God has done this, and we can't thwart what he's done. God has determined that death is the penalty for sin, and God ensures that each one of us receives what we deserve. We shouldn't miss the contrast here either. In the context of humility and our need to be humble before God, there's no greater contrast. God is eternal, right? He is eternally Lord. He is eternally God, but we are not. He is from everlasting to everlasting. We are not. The lordship of God extends to his ability to cause our lives to end at the time of his choosing, and we are powerless against that. We can try to take our own lives. We can have our lives taken by someone else, by sickness or disease, but it's still death. And yet God lives on. He is from everlasting to everlasting. That's not a reason to humble ourselves before him. I don't know what is. He holds your life in the palm of his almighty hands. And by way of note, this text is addressing the temporal consequences for our sin, our real-time consequences of death. But there's also an eternal judgment that this passage doesn't directly address. We'll discuss that a bit later. Scripture says that it is appointed for a man to die once, and after death comes a judgment. That judgment is coming. After death. Suffice it for this passage to be reminded that God Himself has determined that men would be returned to dust as a consequence for sin. Again, we see that, we saw that as we went through Genesis. Well, He goes on to expand on that general statement, verse 3. Uh, as He travels through verses 4 through 6, He briefly mentions the brevity of our lives from God's perspective. And in verses 7 through 11, we see that our lives are made brief because of the wrath of God concerning our sin. Consider again the brevity of our lives in 4 through 6. We've already read through it. I'm not going to read it again. So the you here is the Lord. This is from his perspective. A thousand years in his sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. This is a comparison. Yesterday is gone. Yesterday was today, then. Now it is yesterday. We barely remember it. Most of us probably have no idea what we were doing yesterday. We have no way of interacting with yesterday any longer. It is gone. Likewise, a watch in the night. During that night, the watch may seem long, but afterward it is gone. I remember when I used to work on my college campus, I would do, I had a like, 
20,000 jobs when I worked in college. One of them was uh, night security. And so I had a shift, uh, usually from about 11 to 7, I think it was. And I would sit in a guard shack, and I would do my rounds throughout the, uh, the campus. And it was a pretty large campus, so I would just walk the campus uh, throughout the night. I had a handy-dandy flashlight. That was all I had for my defense. And uh, I tell you, every shadow seemed to move as I was walking <laughs> on that campus at night, right? And it seemed like the longest shift in the world working overnight, especially when I had class in the morning. I mean, it was only eight hours, but it's eight hours overnight in the dark in a creepy campus where there are lots of shadows and woods. My wife knows she can tell you, um, but I made it through. Uh, clearly, I'm here today, so uh, yeah. It didn't help that, um, I don't know if you guys remember the movie Signs, but uh, I, I watched too much move, too many movies when I was growing up. There's this movie called Signs, and there were aliens involved. It's just my weird fascination with sci-fi. But um, around, I think it came out around that time, and so, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm just going to let that go. But you, you get the point. The watch, my night watch was, was sometimes felt like it went on forever. Um, while I was in the wash of the night. But after it was over, it was over. It was done. And I was ready to move on. Um, and that's kind of the comparison here, right? Um, that time seems fleeting after it's gone, after it's over. And that's our life. To the Lord, a thousand years is nothing. It's like that watch in the night. Um, it comes and goes. It's like a brief moment. It's like a flash uh, to us, a thousand years seems like eternity. We'll never see a thousand years, at least on this side of eternity, um, if the Lord tarries. But to the Lord, a thousand years is like nothing because he's eternal. Again, we have more analogies. Thinking about the brevity of our lives. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. It flourishes and is renewed. By the evening, it fades and withers. I just cut my grass yesterday afternoon. It was thick in the morning and overgrown. I bet my neighbors were, uh, had some words for me. But uh, it hadn't been cut since sometime before we, we, we owned the house. So, um, yeah, it was getting kind of thick. And I decided to cut it. In the morning, it was thick and frothy. By the afternoon, it was, it was acceptable. It was respectable. Um, but that morning grass was gone after I cut it. It was done. You know, Isaiah says a similar thing in Isaiah chapter 40. All flesh is like grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, he says. But the word of the Lord endures forever. We are like grass. Our lives are like that. They're brief. They're fleeting. They're like a vapor. Quite often we live life as if we'll live forever and give no real thought to death. We go about life as if we'll live forever. We tend to refer to young people, whoever the young people are to us, as having their lives ahead of them, right? We think about middle-aged people as being about in the midpoint of their lives. They've lived about half of their lives. They have about another half of their lives to live. That's the way we think. We tend to think that those who are older among us are closer to the end of their lives. Again, that's the way we think. We relegate thoughts of death to the funeral service or to aged loved ones who appear to be on their way out of this life when they're sick, but not to us, never to us. We don't think about death coming to us. You know, watching some people's reaction to COVID crisis has made that clear, right? Many live life in fear, fear of getting sick, fear of not taking the proper precautions. Then there are those on the other side of the spectrum who act as if nothing's wrong, right? Nothing's ever going to touch them. Nothing's ever going to happen. They're never going to get sick. They'll be okay. They can walk through a COVID-infested ward in the hospital and never pick it up. They'll be good to go. There has to be a happy medium somewhere. I'm just not sure that anyone's found it yet. Now, sometimes we do feel the sense of brevity, right? Particularly around birthdays. Perhaps after someone has died, when we are deathly ill, in the midst of a pandemic, sometimes we feel that sense of the brevity of life, of how quickly life passes. 
But again, we don't often think about the reason why life is so brief. Why do we have to die? Again, this passage reminds us that our sovereign, the king, the Lord, is the one who does that. Look back at verses 7 through 11. We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? As you read the text, when you see the four, again, there's a reason. The four connects the previous statements. We are like grass that flourishes in the morning and fades in the evening. But why? Why is that true about us? Because we're brought to an end by his anger and by his wrath we are dismayed. He has set our iniquities before him and our secret sins in the light of his presence. And he's determined that we need to die because of our sin. Our iniquities, our secret sins, he says in the text. We all know what sin is. Horizontally, we tend to think of sin in terms of how we measure up to others. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I haven't killed anyone. I haven't stolen anything like anyone else. When we go through hardship especially, those are some of our first thoughts. I don't deserve this. I've lived a pretty good life. I'm not as bad as such and such. I'm not like one of those bad people, those sinners. But sin is really measured vertically. Sin is measured in terms of our offense against the Lord, the sovereign, the ruler, the king. How have we lived up to his standard? How have we abided under his rule? Have we obeyed his commands? Have we sought his good pleasure? Or have we pushed the boundaries? Do we subject ourselves to him, humble ourselves before him, or do we live the way we want to live? The Lord, as a sovereign ruler king, this text tells us, sees our sin like no other. The text says that he sets our iniquities before him. Even our secret sins are made manifest, made visible, made clear in the light of his presence. Think about that for a moment. People see our faults, our failures, the ones we cannot cover up with makeup or our nice Sunday morning demeanor, right? Perhaps our families see the real er sides of us when we go home and we're behind closed doors. That side that we keep under wraps except when no one else is around. And then there's a side of us that no one else sees not even our family members. There's the inner us, the thoughts of our hearts and minds that we don't share because we know that people would have us committed if we did share them. The secret sins that we coddle and indulge in when no one else is looking. There's that side of us. Anger, judgmentalism, pride, impatience, our tendency to resist authority, lust, greed, envy, among other things. No one sees all of these things manifest themselves in our lives necessarily, but God does. In the light of his presence, God is everywhere. In the light of his presence, we live and move and exist. Thus he sees all. I wonder what does he see when he sees you? What does he hear when he listens to your thoughts? When he peers into the, con the condition of your heart, the attitudes of your heart, the question when we are faced with death should not be, why do we have to die? Or rather, if we understood the holiness of God, the greatness of God, even to the point of this passage, the lordship of God, his authority over us, that he sees all the little hidden to the rest of the world, ways we dishonor him daily, ways we anger him daily with our sin, the question should be, how have we made it this long? Why have we not been swept away in his wrath sooner? Why would he be so gracious to delay what we deserve in light of our sin against his rule over us? Look at verse 9. All our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. We abide under the wrath of God for the duration of our lives to the end. Again, he said, all of our days pass away under your wrath. He says, the years of our life are 70 or 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. I've heard some people try to claim the 70 or 80 years of life as a promise. That's not how poetry works. This is not a promise of how many years you're going to live. So 
just, just let that go. Some people live more, some people live less. This is just a matter of speaking. It's just giving us a gauge. You know, we may live 70 years. Seven is typically the number of perfection, so 70 years. Um, you know, a nice round number. Maybe we'll get a little bit more than that, 80 years. That's kind of the idea here. The point is, regardless of how long we live, it's short. And regardless of how long we live, there's toil and trouble, and then we die. That's kind of the point that he's getting to here. This part reminds me a bit of Ecclesiastes, right? Mentioning this, this idea of toil and trouble that we experience in life. Life is hard. There is toil. There is trial. It seems a bit pessimistic, but again, the point is to emphasize our need for humility before the Lord. We look at other men as a source of our pain in life, a relative, a neighbor, even the government and the choices those who rule over us make in this life. Toil and trouble are a part of this life. Difficulty is a part of this life. Complaint and bitterness will not change that. And to the point of this passage, ultimately the reason why we, as humanity, suffer toil and trouble is due to the curse of God. It is his anger, his wrath concerning our sin that led to the curse, which in turn promises both that we will suffer in this life and that ultimately we'll die. Again, if the Lord tarries. We'll all face that same reality. I said this a bit earlier, but the question also when we suffer should not be why do we suffer or why do we suffer in this way? Why do we struggle in this way? But rather, if we understood the greatness of God, his sovereign rule, and the myriad of ways that we rebel against his sovereign rule, we should ask, why have I not suffered more? Why have I been spared from so much suffering? No, honesty, I don't ask that question when I suffer. When something difficult ask, happens, I ask, uh, why? When I find out just one more thing in my new-to-me home that I have to have fixed, I ask, Lord, why? How long is this going to endure? But again, if I really understood the Lord, if as a believer I really considered his sovereignty, his holiness, and his drive to have his justice satisfied, then my perspective on my suffering would change. That's verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who considers that? Who thinks about that? Who considers the anger of God over sin, the reality that we should suffer and we should be suffering more? But he spares us from that. If I did, perhaps I would spend less time complaining about someone who wronged me. I would perhaps spend less time complaining about some circumstance or inconvenience that befalls me. I would spend less time wallowing in self-pity when I encounter toil and trouble and more time being grateful for the time that I haven't suffered. I read a story once about a pastor and his family who received that dreaded knock on the door from the police one evening only to find that their teenage daughter had been killed in a car accident. And um, the story goes on to say that the pastor gathered his family shortly after he heard. They knelt down right there and they prayed a prayer of thanks to God for the time that they had with their little girl. That's faith. That's spiritual maturity. I can't say that I'd be able to do that. But I see that that's faith. Being able to give thanks to God for what you have instead of what you don't have in times of trial. When you learn to react to trial, to trouble, even a trouble that leads to death, first with gratitude for the goodness of God that you've experienced, again, for what you have instead of what you do not have, then you know you are maturing in your faith. Because in reality, whatever happens, we deserve much worse. Again, this is what Peter says to the believers who are suffering in his day, not to protest or complain, become bitter and rage against injustices, but to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. The troubles that they're experiencing, they're experiencing not in a matter that is out of control, but they're experiencing under the hand of God. And so we look to him in times of trial. We humble ourselves before him in times of trouble. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and it says as Peter goes on, that he may exalt you in due time. 
even as Job says, shall we accept good from the hand of God and not adversity? And this is perhaps for another sermon, but biblically, we all know that trials come for the testing of our faith. That's what James says in chapter 1. I think what we don't often consider is that there are times when God gives us a certain kind of trial over and over again. And we, in our thick-headedness, fail to respond to his humbling work, so he gives it to us again. Or he makes us linger long under that trial. Until we learn to respond with humility. In those cases, it's not the other person. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's not the circumstance. It's not God. It's us who needs to change. It's us who need to learn humility. And God, in his grace, gives us the pressure that we need with his almighty hand to teach us humility. The question then becomes, how can we endure? How can we endure the strength of his anger concerning our sin? How can we endure the troubles of this life that we face? We find the answer in our final point this morning, which is found in verses 12 through 17. We humble ourselves as we seek the provision of the Lord for his grace. Look again at the text, verses 12 through 17. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to your children's children, to their children's children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Again, what do we say to these things? We live a short life filled with trouble, then we die. I said in this a uh, little bit earlier that this passage is instructive and exemplary. What's the example? In the face of such difficulty, humble yourself, draw near to God in prayer, and seek him for grace. That's what Moses concludes with. This section contains a string of requests. Teach us to number our days. Return and have pity. Satisfy us with your steadfast love. Make us glad. Let your work be shown to us, your power, your glory. Let your favor be upon us, he says. We see in this Moses' response to these facts, God is eternal. He is eternally God, eternally ruler, eternally sovereign. We have offended him eternally. We receive and deserve his judgment. Moses says simply, ask God for grace to live the life he gives well. For however long it is, under whatever circumstances you find yourself, ask God for the grace to live your life well before him. We need wisdom. Again, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. I love this verse. I try to pray this verse whenever we celebrate birthdays around our home. I think it's helpful to give us the right perspective with each new year. Really, this would be a good prayer daily. Teach us to number our days to remember that we do not live forever, and so we must live purposefully. We must live each day under his sovereignty and for his glory. At the end of Ecclesiastes, one of the most seemingly pessimistic books in all of Scripture, the conclusion is this, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to all of us. We will all have to give an account for every deed done in the body. And at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it says the same thing. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. We're going to have to give an account for every deed done in the body. And that deed includes those secret sins, again, that no one else sees, but he sees. So we're going to have to give an account. So what do we need? We need wisdom to be able to live life well in a way that honors the Lord. So that when we get to the end, we can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We need wisdom, but we also need his compassion, right? Because we don't always live wisely. Verse 13, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. We feel that sense of loss in our relationship with the Lord when we sin. Those of us who truly believe, those who belong to the Lord, can never actually lose fellowship. That's not possible. We don't achieve fellowship with the Lord in a John, a 1 John 1 sense on our own. We don't keep our fellowship on our own, thus we cannot lose it on our own. But we may feel that way because of sin. We feel that he is far from us. We may feel his chastening hand heavily upon us in those times. We need to plead for mercy. God, have mercy on us. Have pity. And that's what Moses is doing here. Have mercy, have pity, have compassion. Again, we already read that God is what? Compassionate and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. So when we feel that way and we cry out for compassion from the Lord, we're just praying back to God what he's already said about himself and asking for that, asking to be able to feel that, to sense that in our lives. And that's a good thing. We need his wisdom. We need his compassion. We also need his joy. We need to be made glad by God in those times. Verses 14 through 16. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. He uses that key phrase that we've seen over and over again in the Psalter. Steadfast love. That is the covenant faithfulness that we often speak of. That is the loving kindness that we often speak of. The covenant love that God has for his people to redeem them, to keep them, to bless them. In fact, this whole last section is predicated upon the goodness of the grace of God. I just mentioned already, uh, back from Joel chapter 2, we saw that God is, again, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love and kindness and truth. As we think about the fact that Moses is referred to in this psalm, perhaps Moses wrote this psalm, we're reminded of Exodus chapter 34. When Moses, the man of God, and this passage blows my mind every time I think about it. Moses, the man of God, who met with God face to face. He spoke with him daily, so much so that his face would shine, reflecting the glory of God. Still said to God, show me your glory. If he had to say that, how how much more should we have to ask for deeper, growing communion with the Lord? For more grace, to see more of his glory. Moses prayed that, show me your glory. You know what God did? He had to hide him in a rock because God said, if you see me, do my face, you will die. You will cease to exist. No man can see me and live. But he hid him in a cleft of a rock. He passed before him. And what did he say about himself? The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, full of love and kindness and truth. He said, show me your glory. And that's what the Lord said about himself. What do we have in this passage? We have the compassion of God. We have the favor of God, the grace of God being requested. We see his loving kindness being requested. Satisfy us with your loving kindness. We started this psalm with a very personal, relational tone. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. We we return to that same tone. Here it gets a little more personal. Again, instead of the general title ascribed to God, the Lord, as significant as that title is, we're simply reminded of the goodness of his covenant faithfulness. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. In the midst of our brief, wearying lives, we need your covenant faithful love to sustain us. In another place, David refers to this as the joy of his salvation. When he sinned against the Lord, he said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. That sense of satisfaction fuels our ability to rejoice in the Lord in the midst of affliction. That sense of satisfaction in the salvation of God is what sustains us in affliction. It's what gives us joy in affliction. We won't rejoice that we're sick. We won't rejoice that we're going to die. We won't rejoice when things are difficult, when things are hard, when things are inconvenient. But we can always rejoice in the Lord because he is good. He is eternally good because his love, his loving kindness, his steadfast love endures. How long? Forever. Moving forward, look again at the text, verse 15. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. The contrast is evident in this passage. Again, though we may have brief lives, though these these days may be filled with affliction, Moses here prays that for as many days as we've experienced affliction, that we would also experience his joy, his gladness, his favor. He says further in verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Lord, let us know your joy. In the same way that we've seen affliction, let us see your joy. Let us rejoice as we see your power at work in our lives. God, do a mighty and gracious work in us so that even though we are at times sorrowful, we may still rejoice. Does anyone need that kind of work in your hearts? Does anyone need that from the Lord today? 
Do you need for the Lord to grant that you see his work in your life today so that even if you are suffering today, you may still rejoice in him today? That's what Moses prays. That's what he asks for. That's the example that we're being given here. Whenever I read through scripture, I like to try to answer the question, what is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever? This is a large part of it. A believer knows that they need the Lord. Being able to verbalize that you need the Lord is the epitome of humility. Lord, I need you. Not just any person, not just any ruler, not just any king. We need the Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who promised salvation to those who come to him by faith. We need him. Again, we find our refuge in him, our dwelling place in him. We know that salvation comes from him. We know that we can find joy in him. We know that we'll find gladness in him. We know that we find those things in him and in him alone. In the midst of the weariness of life, in the midst of the weariness of the season of life, with so many crazy things going on in the world today, where do you find joy? Where are you finding rest? A believer, a Christian, is not one who never experiences sorrow. We're not those who never experience hardship. This psalm testifies that the believer experiences suffering just like everyone else in this life. The difference is that we know where to go to find relief. Because we take refuge in the Lord. We find joy and comfort in our affliction in the Lord. We can do this because Jesus Christ has made a way for us to have that relationship with the Lord. He's made a way for us to find refuge in him because he was also a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. The same sin that this passage referred to earlier, our sin that requires the judgment of God, this sin Christ took for himself. He bore it in himself, in his body, on the cross, so that all who believe in him would not have to suffer the eternal condemnation that comes, but so that we would experience the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, and the ability to take refuge in the Lord Jesus. Again, God is eternal. Thus, any offense against him requires an eternal consequence. Scripture describes this eternal consequence as a place where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. It's a place of eternal torment before the living God. And the reality is, Either you will pay for your sin. Again, it is appointed for man to die once. We all face that. And after death comes a judgment. Either you will pay for your sin for all eternity. Or you'll trust in the Lord Jesus as the one who was sent to be a substitute. To take your penalty, your condemnation. So that you would be forgiven. Either you suffer or you trust in him as the payment for forgiveness of your sin. There are only those two ways to live. One of my old pastors used to say, life is short and death is sure. Today is the day to partake in the grace of God. Once you get to the point of death, there's not going to be any grace to be called upon. Once you get to the point of death, there's not going to be any pleading that's made. There's, you know, people will often use the illustration in in evangelism. You know, if you were to stand before God, you know, at the pearly gates and uh, Peter were to say or somebody were to say, why should I let you into heaven? That's not going to happen. God's not going to ask you at that point, why should I let you into heaven? Either you're going in or you're going down. One way or the other. And that happens instantaneously. There's not going to be even a, a, a period of, uh, uh, of resting or a, a purgatory or a period of waiting to, to work off your sin. There's none of that. You face the end of your life, and then your eternal state, your eternal destiny is sealed. It's done. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who paid the penalty for your sin. Tomorrow's not promised. 
Well, getting back to our text, we need this kind of grace. We need the grace of God to finish well, to live well, so we do well to seek the Lord for it. The reality is that we do not and perhaps will not always see God's work today, but there is coming a day when we will see it. We will see and experience the glory of God in such a way that will make all of our suffering today fade away. And that's a blessing that we have as believers. That's a blessed hope that we have as believers. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That is the joy of the believer. That's the joy of the Christian. That's the hope that we have. When we ask God, show me your glory, we know that he will. We know that his glory will be revealed in us. In the meanwhile, pray for joy. Pray for wisdom. Pray for his mercy. When we fail to be wise... And pray for joy. Pray for that for yourselves and as Moses says here, for also for future generations. Well, verse 17, we're going to hit quickly. It's just a summary of the last section. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We desire to live this, work, this life well. We desire for our brief trial-filled lives to count for something in his eyes. We cannot accomplish this on our own, so we need the favor and the grace of God. Let your favor be upon us and establish the work of our hands. We sang already, O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all, reign supreme, conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. I want to be his. And I want for all of my work, all of my labor to count for his glory. That's our prayer. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that it is God who gives us this victory in Christ so that as we abide in him, as we abide in Christ, the one who's risen from the dead, who's conquered death, the one who frees us from the penalty of sin that we deserve, as we abide in him as our dwelling place and abound in his work, we can be assured that none of our labor will be in vain. Well, again, we need to respond with humility before the Lord. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. As we think on his person, as we consider his strength, the strength of his anger towards sin, the penalty of death, and the toil that we endure, as we seek his favor, his grace to endure well, to live for his glory, we must do all these things in a spirit of humility. Again, I ask, how are you doing with that this morning? Have you made the Lord your dwelling place, a place where you can be still and simply rest in his goodness as God? I would urge you to commit yourself anew to taking a posture of humility before the Lord this morning for his glory and your good. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for this time that we've had together. Thank you for your word, which is true, your word, which sanctifies us, your word, which makes us holy. Thank you for your steadfast love, your loving kindness, your faithfulness to keep your covenant promises Thank you that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Father, as we endure difficulty in this life, help us to endure it with humility before you, pursuing you, seeking you, drawing near to you for our good and your glory. In Christ's name, amen.